If you have access to the Bible on your phone or your tablet and you want to bring that out as well, 1 Thessalonians is in the New Testament, which is about the final one-third of, of your Bible. So you go there to a set of letters from a man named Paul, and we've been going through the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, a step at a time, and we are going to conclude the study next week as we celebrate Easter and we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and then we'll pick up a new study in the book of Revelation beginning in, in April. A couple of quick things before, before we get started. First, uh, the guys, the security guys out front wanted me to let you know that they found a cell phone in the, the men's restroom, so not everyone at one time run out the back door to go claim your cell phone, but if you try to, uh, if you're looking for a cell phone at some point, you realize you lost it, they've got it out there, uh, out there at the coffee bar. Also, if you're a guest of ours this morning, we want to let you know that in the seat back in front of you, you may see a little guest card there. If there's a way that we could pray with you or share some more information about Emmaus or just some things that your family or you need by way of ministry, you can fill that out and put that in the offering plate that will be passed around at the end of the service. That's a way that you can serve us and we can serve you in that way. Uh, and so we want to let you, know, let you know about that. All right, First Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 4 this morning, we're going to start in verse 9 as we begin reading. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And then in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for the celebration of Palm Sunday, for the entrance of Jesus into the city as he came as King and Savior, for the beginning of Holy Week, God, that we would not miss the power of what it means to experience your love, your hope, your salvation at work in our lives. And God, I pray that you would remind us of that in a fresh way this morning. And God, that we would be encouraged, we would be comforted by that hope in a way that we'll be able to share that with others this week and, and in the year to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
I might have mentioned this earlier, uh, but if you turn over to the back of your bulletin, you can see that there's no notes there. Uh, but if you would like to put some notes there, you can number one through five. What we're going to do this morning is I want to give you from this passage five sources of comfort or five sources of encouragement that Paul gives the people here so that they will have hope. So you can number one to five, and then at the very end, I'm going to give you two ways that that hope impacts our life. So kids, second grade through 99 years old, if you want to number one through five, and then number one and two at the bottom of your page, and we're going to kind of follow, follow along that. As we get started, two questions uh, that might allow you to think and focus on this passage this morning. The first, if you have some background in church or you've grown up around church and, and know the Bible a little bit, an interesting question to ask yourself this morning would be, what does Palm Sunday have to do with the rapture? So if you have a church background, that might be an intriguing question. If you are here, but you really don't consider yourself a religious person or a Christian, but you're here curious about, you know, what do we think about Jesus? A question you might have or want to think about this morning is, if what these people say about Jesus is really true, then why death? Why pain? Why suffering? If they're celebrating all of this at Easter about a Jesus who died for them and then rose again so that we would have hope— how do you still live in a world of pain and suffering and death? Here's the reason that question is so important. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a church, and he's writing to a group of Christians who have only been around for a short amount of time. We're only a couple of decades past the death and resurrection of Jesus at this point, and they've heard that this Jesus who died rose again, ascended into heaven they've heard that he's going to come back and to no fault of their own they think that means come back very soon probably within their lifetime but guess what happens some of the people there begin to die and the people who are still living they start to panic a little bit they start to have these questions if jesus defeated death and, and make sure you understand how easily these questions would have come if Jesus defeated death, we've believed in Jesus and experienced that salvation. We're waiting for him to come back, and now some of our friends who have believed in Jesus are starting to die. What does this mean? What's going to happen to these people who have died? And so Paul gives them these words of encouragement. He gives them these words of comfort for this time, and he gives them five pieces of comfort. And I want to walk us through these verses. The first, number one, is grief and hope can exist together. The first comes from verse 13. Grief and hope can exist together. Look at verse 13 in your Bible or your phone. Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. So they've had some misunderstanding about these people who have died. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Don't misunderstand verse 13 there. Paul is not telling them that they can't grieve. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, though, that their grieving should not look the same as those who don't have hope in Jesus. 
if we're not careful, sometimes we'll hear this in such a way that, well, if I'm a Christian and I really believe in the power of Jesus and the resurrection, then when something bad happens in life, I shouldn't grieve. I shouldn't have these outward expressions of anguish and pain. And what you end up with at that point is a grin and bear it theology where when I show up at church in front of my Christian friends, even though I'm hurting inside, I should look good on the outside and not show them that I'm hurting because grief is a bad thing. Don't go down that road. That road will create bitterness inside of you. It will create a fake two-faced approach to church where I have to act one way at church around my Christian friends and another way somewhere else. Paul is not saying that grieving is bad here. Grieving in many ways is a gift from the Lord, a way to express this anguish that we feel of living in a world where death still happens, where people suffer. We still live before the second coming of Jesus when he will make all things right. We live in this broken world, and so we're going to grieve, and that's not a bad thing. There's no embarrassment. There's no shame about grief. We all realize people grieve in different ways and at different speeds, but the last thing we want to feel is that I have to be embarrassed because I feel sad and I'm a Christian. That's not what Paul says. Paul just says when you grieve, don't grieve as those who have no hope because you have hope. And, and make sure we understand, it's not just grieving at the point of death. We grieve a lot of times during life. Family life is bad. Your kids are going sideways. You grieve over that. Economy's bad. Your job's on the rocks. Your business is on the rocks. We grieve over that. We don't have to pretend that everything is okay. There is a way that grief acknowledges that this life is a gift from God, and when things don't go well, there's real, authentic grief that sets in. But we also have hope in the midst of this. In the ancient world, there was this idea among some people that you could grieve, and it was supposed to bring some level of comfort, but Paul is matching this idea that if you truly know God, you'll experience a different type of hope. Let me give you a Bible verse that'll make better sense of those words I tried to put together there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and I think this will be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, remember that you were at one time, he's talking to a group of Christians, he's saying, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ having no hope and without God in the world. So without God, Paul realizes that would be a life without hope. I want you to see a letter that archaeologists have found from the ancient world. Obviously, this is not the exact letter, but they found this letter uh, from the ancient world from a a lady named Irene. And Irene writes this letter to a friend. She says, I'm so sorry, and I weep, over the departed one as I wept for my Didymus. So she's writing, trying to comfort a friend here. But nevertheless, against such things, so against the reality of death, one can do nothing. Therefore, and those exclamation points are my insertion in there, therefore, comfort one another. Therefore, comfort one another. What kind of comfort is it If your friend sends you a letter and says, hey, I'm so sorry about what happened, you know, can't do anything about it, life goes on, people die, have a good day, hope you're comforted by that. Like, well, hey, you should sign up to work for Hallmark, 
Because obviously you know how to create a card that's going to really bring joy and hope to somebody's life. That letter from Irene is not a Hallmark card. That's not going to make anybody feel better. All she can offer is, hey, death happens, therefore comfort one another. Paul, though, gives an entirely different basis for the hope that we have. His basis is also found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is the basis for our hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. So what's the result of being born again, of experiencing God's work in your life? That you have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul says your comfort, your encouragement in the face of suffering isn't some cheesy grin and bear at theology Our hope, our comfort is based in Jesus' resurrection. So this is number two. Number two, the second way that Paul gives them comfort and encouragement is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 14. So back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look in verse 14. Paul says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is the second time in two verses that you've seen that phrase sleep or fallen asleep in reference to someone who has died. This was a fairly common idea in the ancient world that you would describe death by describing it as sleep, going to sleep. But there's really kind of three different ways in the ancient world sleep was used as an image for death. The first one is that a person went to sleep, they died, and they just never woke up. Look at this quote from an ancient poet, uh, a Roman poet named Catalyst. Catalyst says, oh, excuse me, Catalyst spoke in a high voice, apparently, but uh, Catalyst said, uh, this quote, yeah, there it is, the ancient Roman poem. He said, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, There is one unending night to be slept through. You can tell the ancients were great at at encouraging people. But uh, this is the first idea in the ancient world of sleep. And and here's something I would present to you. I I can't make a hard case for this being the, the, the reality. I think this view of death, this view of sleep, is probably the most common that you would find in our world today. If you polled people, and, and like I said, I don't have any data. This is purely just a guess on my part. But as our world becomes more and more secular, more and more, you just kind of live your life the best you can, and then whatever happens, happens. I think this idea that what, is ha- what happens to someone when they die, people would say something like they just go to sleep, and they just sleep forever. I, I think that's a fairly common view in our world, even if people didn't describe it exactly like this. Another way that people take sleep is the idea that you would be unconscious for a time after death and then you would wake again. This is a concept of soul sleep that's pretty common in Jehovah's Witness uh, ways of thinking uh, about death. Some Seventh-day Adventist groups, but not all, will describe death in this way. It's the idea of soul sleep that after you die, you become unconscious for a certain amount of time, and then at the final coming of Christ, everybody will sort of regain consciousness together. 
That's not what Scripture teaches. You don't see that any place in, in the New Testament. But sometimes groups will take the term sleep and they'll make it mean something like soul sleep. What the early Christians meant when they used sleep in reference to death is they meant that what has happened to a person is not the end of the story for that person. So when it says here that we have fallen asleep in Christ, it's a, it's a metaphor, it's an image for what has happened to that person is not the end of the story. Here's a fun fact. The word cemetery, the word cemetery comes from the combination of two Greek words, and the first of those words means sleep. So a cemetery, that English word, is a combination of a couple of words that essentially just means a place of sleep or measuring out places where people will sleep. So even when someone calls something a cemetery, that's a wide-open opportunity for you to say, hey, did you know that that actually references a place of sleep? And let me tell you why it refers to sleep. It's kind of an open door to talk to somebody about faith. Uh, but, but cemetery is that idea that when somebody died, it wasn't the end of the story for them. Why? Why did Christians believe this? They believed it because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. Look back at verse 14 again. I want to, there's a very important contrast in verse 14 that you need to see. Verse 14 says, If we believe, and that word if doesn't mean a doubt. It just means if this is true, and it is, and here are the implications of it. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Notice that when it references Jesus' death here, it doesn't say that Jesus fell asleep. It specifically says that Jesus died. But when it references the Christian's death, it says they fell asleep. Why would it say that Jesus died instead of Jesus fell asleep? The reason it would do that is because Paul wanted to make sure there was no confusion about the fact that Jesus really did die and he really did come back to life. There were some ideas in the ancient world that Jesus' resurrection wasn't true, that he just kind of passed out on the cross, went unconscious, and then woke up again, and so he really didn't die for us. Well, first off, that's a terrible misunderstanding of crucifixion in the ancient world. But moreover, Paul wants to be very clear, Jesus really did die for us, and he really did come back from the dead. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you say that sounds crazy, you're on exactly the right track because it should sound crazy that a man died and he rose again. But understand as well that that is the very core of our hope. If that did not happen, I should be playing golf this morning. Okay, And I know it's cold, but I would still be playing golf this morning. Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 no resurrection, this is a complete waste of our time. The very core of our hope, the very core of the comfort that we have in the face of suffering and death is that Jesus died and he rose again. And that forms the foundation for what we believe. On top of that, though, not only did Jesus die, rise again, and begin to reign victoriously, but Christians believe that Jesus would return. So number three, Number two was Jesus' resurrection. Number three is Jesus' return. The third source of comfort, the third reason Paul said, hang in there, you can have hope, is that Jesus will return. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul says, this is the word of the Lord. I'm not making this up. This is not what I hope will happen. This is what I am certain will happen. This is given to me as a word of the Lord. Interesting thing about that, when it says this is the word of the Lord, you can't go to any place in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament that give us the words of Jesus and the, and the life of Jesus. You can't go there and find this exact phrase. But there were many, many things that Jesus said and did that didn't ultimately become contained in the New Testament. A lot of these things were passed down from generation to generation as tradition. This seems to be one of those things. And so he said, this is the word of the Lord, that he will come. The word there, in parentheses, is the word parousia. I wouldn't put it up there. I wouldn't make a big deal about it, except that if you have a study Bible, or you like to read other information about theology and about the Bible, this is a very common term. And it was a very common term in the, in the ancient world, and it meant a coming, or it meant that the presence of someone coming into your present, it meant an appearing of someone, someone came and visited you, they appeared to you, they were in your presence, it was a parousia. So it was a very common term, but it referred to the coming or the appearing of someone. Then look in verse 16, it says, this is how that parousia, this is how that coming is going to happen. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So not an angel will come, but the Lord himself will come. The coming of the Lord to his people had been one of the prophecies in the Old Testament, something that the Jewish people expected. They were waiting for the Lord himself to come and to defeat their enemies and to bring salvation to his people. This was an anticipation. And, and Paul says it, he will come. Not he might come, he will come. There was a certainty to this. Paul may have expected this to happen in his lifetime. That wouldn't be out of the ordinary. Every generation expects for Jesus to come in their lifetime. Once again, if you're here and you're skeptical about Christianity, you're not sure about this whole Jesus story, this would be a great time for you to say, and every other generation will expect Jesus to come back. It's never going to happen. That's a legitimate thought, but there's a very important Bible verse that addresses that. Second Peter chapter 3. I don't want to be clear so this doesn't come across uh, insulting in any way if that's your thought. Hey, Jesus is never coming back. Why are you worried about this? Second Peter 3 addresses this very clearly. Scoffers, and now you're really angry because I just called you a scoffer. So uh, notice, scoffing here is the idea of, of being skeptical about something, being, ah, that's never going to happen. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? And in 2 Peter 3, we, the verses aren't on the screen, but it goes on to say that with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. In other words, it's completely human nature to say, you're telling me Jesus is coming back. We've been waiting 2,000 years for this. It's not going to happen. Peter, though, and Paul himself will come along and say, be careful how you view time in that essence. Be careful how you view the Lord's work, because he will come. 
And 1 Thessalonians 4 gives a very specific way that he will come. Look back in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says that he will descend. All right, here's where it gets fun. Okay, let's make the connection here. This is where 1 Thessalonians 4, out to the side in your Bible, you can write Palm Sunday. This is what 1 Thessalonians 4 has to do with Palm Sunday. We serve a God who in his goodness has always been coming to his people. And how does he always come to his people? He always has to do what? He always has to descend. He always has to come down to his people. The incarnation, the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Philippians chapter 2 says that in order to do that, he had to leave his heavenly glory and come down to his people. Palm Sunday that we celebrate today on the church calendar, as Jesus is preparing to come into the city. Now, anytime you traveled to Jerusalem, he was coming into Jerusalem. Anytime you traveled toward Jerusalem, you always went up, except if you found yourself on the Mount of Olives. And then, in order to get into Jerusalem, you have to go down this very steep hill. And if you visit today, it is a tight, steep descent that will take you down. As Jesus is coming to the city, he is descending, he is coming to his people. Paul says that same way that he came to his people is how he will come in his final coming. He will descend. We serve a God who always descends and comes to his people. And what that means for his people is that means great comfort. That means that he will fulfill his promises and he will come to be with us and to bring final victory. And Paul wants this idea of Jesus descending to remind them of this is how Jesus came the first time in his birth. This is how he comes on Palm Sunday to bring victory. And this is how he will come in his final coming to make all things right. This is a very specific way that Paul is helping the people link these things together. Now, there's some descriptions of how that happens here in verse 16, and frankly, we just don't have time this morning, but, but there are phrases that deal with Jesus' majesty and his honor. He comes majestically with honor. Number four is that we will experience Jesus' return together. So if that's too many words, kids, just write the word together. Number four is we will experience Jesus' return together. Look at the end of verse 16 and then the beginning of verse 17. The end of verse 16 says, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is the idea that Paul wants these believers whose friends are dying before Jesus comes back to know that when Jesus comes back, we will experience this together. And as he describes this situation, he's answering some very specific questions for them. And there are two key words that I want us to point out. And before I look at these words and do some explaining here, I need you to, to be patient with me. I need us to trust one another because I'm going to say some things that may confront ways that you've understood this text before. 
what I'm saying is don't throw anything at me in the next five minutes, okay? So uh, if you brought, if brought anything to throw, keep it in your pocket for just a few minutes. All right, two, two key phrases here. The first is where it says that they will be caught up together with them. In verse 17, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together. This is a word that means to snatch away or, or to seize out of a situation. The Latin word for this is where we get our word rapture. So if you've heard Christians talk about the rapture before, the closest example you're going to get to that comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4 here. This is a word, not the Greek word, but the Latin word that's used here is a word that is connected to rapture. Now, it was a very common word. It's used multiple times in the New Testament. It was very common in the ancient world to be snatched out or taken out of a situation, especially if that situation wasn't going well. Let me give you one example. We can look at tons of them in the New Testament. One example is in Acts chapter 8, verse 39. So what we're doing is I want to give you an example of another place in the New Testament where this term that's connected to the rapture is used. Acts chapter 8, verse 39 When they came up out of the water, this is where uh, Philip is baptizing the the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Now, if you just see that phrase, carried away, it may not be a big deal, but that phrase is the same term in the original language that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4 for being caught up. Or, or taken away or snatched up. So it's just this term for being taken out or removed from a situation. Then look in verse 17. It says that after we are caught up together with him. So we're back in, in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. When we are caught up together with him in the clouds, we will do what? We will meet the Lord in the air. Now once again, this phrase for meeting is a very common phrase, very common word in the old uh, ancient world. It was specifically used when a dignitary would visit a city and a group of people would go outside the city and they would meet that dignitary and they would be a part of his procession back into the city. Okay, let's connect a couple of things together here. Palm Sunday Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. There are a group of people who go out to meet him and they lay their palm branches and they lay their coats on the air. They they meet him and then he comes into the city. And presumably some of these people come into the city. They make this entrance with him. All throughout the ancient world you get this idea of going out to meet. Here's another example in the New Testament. Acts chapter 28, verse 15. I think I've got this one on the screen. Acts 28, 15 the brothers there in Rome, so this is Paul going to Rome, the brothers there in Rome, when they heard about us, so when they heard that Paul and his traveling companions were coming, they came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. So here's what's going on in Acts 28. Paul and his traveling companions are going to Rome, and as they're coming toward the city, a group of people come out of the city, and they meet Paul and his companions, and then they escort him, they take him in to the city. So we've got that image in our mind. We go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. So they will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
Here's where I need you to be patient with me. In modern church life, especially Southern Baptist church life, especially if you've been a part of a kind of a Bible church through the years, when we think of the rapture, we think of being pe- people being removed from this earth, meeting the Lord up in the air, and then what happens next at that point? We continue up, so to speak, we continue up with the Lord into heaven, removed from this place. But if you take this term as it was often used, almost always used in the ancient world, as it's used other places in Scripture, as you're raptured up, as you're caught up, and you meet the Lord, if you take the term the way we've seen it, what would happen next? We wouldn't continue up into the heavens. We would meet the Lord, and we would escort him. We would be a part of his triumphal coming back to earth. Now, the lights are bad, so I don't see anything coming at me, so I think I'm okay at this point. No one's throwing anything at me. The idea of a rapture in the sense of taking away from this earth to be sent up into heaven for a while while things happen here on earth is actually a fairly recent development in theology. You only have to go back a couple hundred years, and a couple of guys named Darby and Schofield, uh, some of you even this morning may, ha- may have a Schofield reference Bible. If you grew up in a church that used the King James Version, as your Bible, there's a good chance that you had the Schofield reference Bible with these reference notes and, and Darby and Schofield put forward this idea, million dollar word, but they put forward this idea called dispensationalism. And it, within this idea was the idea of the rapture. And it began to catch on. And then you have things happening. How Lindsay, great late planet Earth, some of you grew up reading that. Others have read Tim LaHaye, the Left Behind series. Uh, Larry Norman, his song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Uh, if, if you guys down here on the front don't know Larry Norman, Larry Norman was progressive Christian rock before it even existed. <laughs> Larry, Larry Norman pushed the envelope in Christian music before you were allowed to do that, but he, he had a song called I Wish We All Been Ready, and it was used in all these rapture movies. If you grew up in a church that was kind of a hellfire and brimstone church, you probably watched a scary rapture movie at some point where there was a, all these cars wrecking and people were being taken up into the air. You're looking at me saying, is that rapture that we think of, is that taught in Scripture? And I'm going to say it's not crystal clear either way. I'm not, hear me out, I'm not making fun of or saying that that idea of a rapture in the sense of being taken up and going up into heaven for a while is wrong or completely unbiblical, but it's very, very difficult to get from this passage. In fact, you probably don't get it from this passage, and you almost have to read it in to other passages, and on top of that, that's not what Paul is trying to answer. That's not his goal for us in this passage. His goal for us in this passage is really one thing. It's that the people would be comforted by knowing that when Jesus comes back, they would be reunited with their brothers and sisters in Christ who had died. Many of you have lost loved ones recently, You've lost friends, you've lost family members to death. Hear me out on this. Your great source of comfort is not the image of a rapture taking place. 
your great source of comfort is that the resurrection of Jesus means that we will all be reunited together with him. The resurrection is our source of comfort. That's our source of encouragement. That's what we find here. That's Paul's point here, is that the body of Christ will be reunited. And then number five, we're going to finish, this is the last one, is that we will be with the Lord forever. So kids, if you want to write down one word on number five, write down the word forever. Number four was together. Number five is forever. We will be with the Lord forever. Look at verse 17 at the end of verse 17. Very clearly, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the great celebration of final victory. This is the fact that the great message of heaven is not that it's the great buffet in the sky. It's not even the fact that we'll be reunited with other believers The great glory and victory of heaven, of God making all things new, is that we will be with the Lord forever. And if you want to do a fun comparison study, you take Genesis chapters 1 and 2 at the beginning of your Bible, and then you take Revelation chapter 21 and 22 at the end of your Bible, and you see the way that God's goal for the world and for humanity has always been that he would be with his people forever. The beauty of Genesis 1 and 2 finally finds its full victory in Revelation 21 and 22 when God will be with his people. We will be with him, he will be our God, and we will be his people. That is the final, ultimate source of our hope and our encouragement. If you have that hope, what should happen with your life? If you have that hope, what should happen with your life? Number one, so down at the bottom of your paper, there's a spot for two little things if you wrote it in. Number one is you will be set free to trust God. If we have this kind of hope, we will be set free to trust God. No need to fear death. No need to doubt God's plan We have this freedom to say, I know because of the resurrection, because of the return, because of the fact that we will be reunited, because of the fact that we will be with him forever, even though we grieve, we have hope and we can trust him. When tragedy strikes in your family, whether it's your kids going sideways, whether it's your marriage falling apart, whether it's your job going away, whether it's a family member dying, when tragedy strikes, At the very core of that experience is, will I continue to trust God? And this passage right here from Paul says, yes, I can continue to trust God. I am set free because of the resurrection to trust him. And number two, the other result of this hope and this encouragement is that you are set free to live for God. The first one is that I trust God inwardly Inside, I have this confidence that I know that he is good and he will bring all things to perfect completion. And because of that, number two, I am set free to live for God. To finish up this morning, I want to connect the passage we just read with verses 9 through 12 that come just before them. If you look back in your Bible, so we just looked at 13 through 18, but it it matters that verses 9 through 12 come before this. Because look at what what Paul says as he kind of leads into this. He's talking about loving one another, uh, that, that they're loving the brethren. And then he says, I want you to do this more and to make it your ambition 
to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So Paul says, I'm going to give you the greatest source of encouragement you could ever need in your life. And then you're going to continue to love others. You're going to continue to go to work. You find out in 2 Thessalonians that some of the people heard about Jesus coming back. And so they said, oh, great, good news. We're going to quit our job And so they quit working, and they stood around waiting for Jesus to come back. And when their money ran out, other people had to step in and help them because they weren't going to work anymore, and they had become lazy. Paul says if you believe in the second coming of Jesus, which we absolutely do, the best thing you can do is go to work. Continue to live your life. Love others, go to work, and impact others with the hope that you've been given. There at the end, attend to your own business Work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. When you are set free to live for God, you are able to serve others because you're not constantly looking out for yourself. Don't miss the connection here. Sometimes people will say about Christians, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. You may have heard that phrase somewhere along the way. They're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Paul says clearly that if you are heavenly minded, you should be of the most earthly good because you are set free from having to worry about the future and so you're able to give your life for the good of others. You're able to live in order that others would know the goodness of God so that others would benefit from the hope that he's given you. I want to read you just kind of a short little paragraph to to sum this up. What our world desperately needs in a time of fear-based prophecy schemes, and prophecy is not bad, prophecy is a gift of God, but some people take prophecies about the future and they turn them into fear-based manipulative things. What our world needs in the midst of fear-based prophecy schemes and self-centered prophet strategies are people set free to love and live freely for the good of others without fear of death, and with living hope for today and tomorrow. I hope as you leave this morning that you are comforted by God's word and that you are encouraged that because you trust in the Lord, you are set free to live for the good of others. And by God's grace, I hope we can be that type of church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a passage like this. There's a lot of things to look at, a lot of things to discuss, but God, we don't want to miss the main point, which is that we, even though we grieve, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. God, there are many people here today who have experienced grief in their family, either through a job or through a relationship, or through a death. But God, we know that in the midst of that, we can continue to trust you because of the resurrection, because of the coming return of Jesus, that we will be reunited with those who have died in Christ, and that we will be with you forever. 
God, I pray this we enter Holy Week and we prepare for Easter that we would be able to share that hope with those around us. As you're sitting right there praying, thinking about worship this morning and thinking about this passage, let me ask you to do something as you're sitting there praying. Think of someone you know in your life who is grieving and ask the Lord that he would give you an opportunity to share with them the hope that you have this Easter. And if you're facing intense grief in your own life right now, here in just a minute, we're going to stand and sing a psalm together. During that time, if we can pray for you, we want to be able to do that. God, I pray that we would be able to trust you so that we would be able to then be set free to live for the good of others and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.